Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 16 of Off the Course, the podcast that explores the personal lives and interests of golf course superintendents and other turf pros. I'm Matt Lowell, managing editor of the magazine, joined today by Raul Yerk. Raul is a Penn State Turfgrass alum, a former intern at Carmel Country Club in Charlotte, and a former AIT at Marion Golf Club. He is also a native Brazilian, currently tangled in the thicket of visa regulations, working to rejoin the U.S. turf industry after dedicating the last seven years toward that pursuit. Raul wrote a great feature for our January issue, available online now at golfcourseindustry.com backslash magazine, and in your physical mailbox soon, about his career and his current efforts to return to the United States where there are more than 100 times more golf courses than there are in Brazil. There's not a single public golf course in that entire country. Raul is a talented young turf pro, still just 39, and his story is far from over. I really enjoyed talking with him. Before we get going, a quick thanks to the sponsor of Off the Course, AquaAid Solutions. For more than 30 years, AquaAid Solutions has been helping turf managers around the world develop comprehensive agronomic plans to produce healthy, environmentally aware, safe, natural grass-playing surfaces. They're proud to deliver best-in-class solutions for management of key elements for a healthy and sustainable plant system. Their solutions include wetting agents, soil surfactants, calcium and potassium products, and worm power turf, all of which help the end user optimize his or her agronomic programs. Incorporating AquaAid Solutions' technologically advanced active ingredients with cutting-edge equipment technology and IMANTS, Vrito Seeders, and Seagrow Mobile Grow Systems, turf managers like yourself are offered synergistic solutions delivering long-lasting agronomic value, improved aesthetics, and playability. AquaAid Solutions. After the break, Raul Yerk. My guest again, Raul Yerk. He is a seven-year veteran of the turf industry at the moment, living in Brazil, but a veteran of the Penn State Turfgrass program. He interned at a few clubs. He was an assistant at training at a little club called Marion that I think a lot of listeners know. And he is at the moment trying to get back into the U.S. turf industry, navigating the very strenuous hurdles of our immigration process. Raul, good morning, or good afternoon, technically, where you are in Brazil. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you so much for this invitation, Mr. Laval, and I'm really honored. It's great to have you, and it's great to finally just look at you face-to-face. We're recording this over Zoom. I usually do um, conversations on the phone, but uh, an international phone call might run a little bit more than you or I want to uh, want to spend uh, you are the subject and also the author of a story in the January issue. Great story. Uh, the headline is, Be Thankful for What You Have. If you ever take working in the United States golf industry for granted, you won't. You're learning the plight of a determined turf manager from a nation with little golf. So you wrote this story. You approached Guy, Cipriano, and me with your, with your story. We read through it. It's, it's incredible. And, and after everything you've gone through, 
you are trying desperately to get back in the turf industry and we will absolutely get to that part of the story. But I'm curious, you're 39, you've been in the turf industry for more than seven years now. You got in in 2013. Tell me, how did you discover the turf industry in the first place, living in a country with, I think Brazil, you said, has what, 116 courses and none of them are public? Yeah, uh, well, I discovered the turf industry working at, uh, like you said, at a local golf course uh, where I met a gentleman called Mr. Tapias, who introduced me to this industry. So Mr. Tapias is a turf grass consultant from Argentina, and he covers the South America territory, mostly Brazil right now, a lot of golf courses and soccer fields. And he used to come from time to time at this golf course I was working at. And having the opportunity to spend some time with him and either hosting him at the course or following his agronomic reports, I kind of felt in love with the profession and that's basically the start of everything. And from there, I started questioning him about how I could become a turf professional and he explained me some details about this, this industry and he recommended me to look first for a solid education outside Brazil because really we don't have nothing like you have in US regarding education. And at the very first moment, it sounded impossible for me, the idea of moving countries, facing a different culture, facing a different language. And it was a little bit scary, I need to say that, but Fortunately, I, I went through all these and with some relative success. As the time was passing, my interest in on, on the turf industry was only growing up. Uh, as you know, in 2016, we have the Olympic Games in Rio, which I consider a big boost for me in my thought process, in my decision-taking process. And golf was back and there was a lot of expectations in terms of advancement of the local turf industry. It definitely that was not that happened, but certainly the future was promising at that time. And I saw this on a unique opportunity to prepare myself for the future and maybe stand out in the local market. And that makes me interested enough to pursue education. And that was it. So in 2013, you were in your early 30s. You were already married at the time, right? You're married. Yeah, now. I was already married at the time. I used to run my uh, small, uh, I owned my own business and I was married at the time. In 2002, we had a terrible economical crisis in Brazil who shut down many businesses like mine at that point. And from there, I was invited to work at this small golf course that I was a member at. I used to play golf over there and they were needing a person to assist in finances and I was invited to, to fill in this position. What was, your, what was your business that was ultimately, I guess, shut down? It was a small hardware store, oh. a lot of construction materials within it too and that was the type of the thing that I was, was doing. And why, why was it shut down? What was, what was uh, well, in 2002, there was a major economical crisis in Brazil, okay. so several businesses were basically not making any profit of it, and we decided to stop it. 
and then what did you do between the time that the hardware store was shut down with the with the uh, with the crisis to when you started working at the golf course? Yes, I was unemployed for the most part of the time, uh, really suffering the consequences of it and trying to do something new. And the golf course was interested in me to assist in finance, like I said, and uh, I decided to fill in that position. And it was great. It was uh, to open for me a new world of new different things, new professions, different things that you can be doing. So you were working there how long before you applied to turf schools? And then how long were you there before you ultimately moved to the United States and to State College in particular, because you did matriculate to the great program at Penn State? Yeah, I worked there for two years, from 2013 to 2016. And basically I was filling the gap. The program demands you some previous experience and I was trying to fill in that. At that point, it was three years of requirement and it was spot on. It was just the time that I worked, I could start and that was it. What was the conversation like with your wife when you said, I want to advance my career, but I need to go thousands of miles away and I need to move to Pennsylvania, wherever that is? That was really tough. That probably was the hardest part to to put things together with her, but she she's my partner and I'm so blessed to having her and she supports me all the time and also she saw that would be that could be a great opportunity for us to make a big switch moving countries, find a better place for living and we conclude that the all these efforts could pay off and we took this decision as a group, let's say. And what is her name? Uh, her name is Kabali. Was there ever any discussion that she would move with you when you were in turf school, or was it only when you were starting your career and you reached that certain visa status? I did that the appropriate time for this was when I have a solid job that I was able to rent a house or something like that. Before that would be really tough. It's, it's a lot of really busy days, I already knew that when I was going into it. And I said, there will, there will be no time for us, no time for fun or, or travels, something like that. You, you'll be bored and she decided to stay. I think that was the, the right move because then I have time to dedicate myself as, as hard as I could. And you really focused at Penn State. I think you wrote in your story that when you were a student, when you were younger, I'm assuming uh, in your teens and, and maybe early 20s, you were, you were fine. You, you, were, you were a fine student, but you were, weren't always 100% invested. You maybe sometimes were disinterested this time around, uh, as is the case with a lot of people who, who come into, back into education in their late 20s and, and early 30s. You were all in. You were so focused. What, what was the Penn State program like for you, education-wise, and, and obviously, getting to know a lot of the people there, both students and You are correct in everything you said. As long as you're, you're doing uh, things that you like, things came easy to you. That's, that's the, the, the point of it, I think. Yeah, that was by far the best educational experience I have ever had. 
it was just just amazing being there, learning for a select group of experts in the field, and we had a lot of opportunities to grow in the area networking and all this kind of stuff, and so that was really cool for me. Was there anything that surprised you about American education, whether it was the application process or just the differences between American and Brazilian classrooms or, or anything like that, Raul? Yeah, of course. Uh, for me, as an international, things were a little bit difficult. Uh, international application is a little, a little bit more complex than the others, but nothing, I would say, that can let you down. And in specific, it will be required for you to have a previous experience in the field. That's one big thing. Also, they will require from you your proficiency in English, which they do this about the TOEFL exam. So it's a three-hour exam. You have the written part, the communication, oral skills, written skills, and you need to prove your proficiency in English in this, in this, in this exam to be accepted. And the last part of it, I would mention the visa, the student visa. That is a little bit, a little bit difficult to put everything together. But at Penn State, you 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 find out the global offices they have there, and they provide you all the support for all these things. And so things turns a little bit easier than it appears. What did you need to put together to get that student visa? Sure, there were a lot of little things and big things and just a lot of steps in general to get that ready. Yes, there's, there's a, a lot of steps in it. I probably don't remind of them, but <laughs> a little complicated process. There's so many specifics, but it all depends to be, to prove that your involvement with university, they, they, they expedited some documents to you and you need to arrange your your visa appointment at the Brazilian consulate. And once you do this, you need to basically wait for it and they will give you the visa. They call the F1 student visa. So you were at Penn State for how long were you there? Was it a couple of years? Well, it's a two-year program. And yes, I, I, 18 months total. It was the time I spent there. Yes. What was the evolution, the development of your turf knowledge like there? How much did you pick up? What, what did you really just grab onto? Be like, ah, this is, this is what you're supposed to do here. This is what you're supposed to do there. Now I understand uh, what's going on in the course a little bit better. Well, there is a lot. Uh, it's not only about agreements. It's, uh, I would call, uh, business culture. Like they say, like they say there, uh, something, some first lesson you learn is at the end of the day is 90% business and 10% agronomics. And uh, I'll tell you that coming from a previous experience from a small golf course, even if it's a very small golf course, you, you run into a lot of problems, a lot of business issues, management issues. So I was really surprised and was really pleased that they have all these business uh, addition to, the, to this program. So that was really cool. In terms of agronomics, uh, I would say learning about more about Poenia was a good thing. It's a major, major uh, weed that you have all over the country and 
that's lessons that you carry over the world. I think it's a major problem in Brazil as well. And I have Dr. Uh, Huff as a professor who's a real expert in this matter. He taught us about the epigenetics, about this this weed, and it was really good to learn about this. And in terms of everything that you got into, especially the business end, what are the differences? If you had remained in Brazil and just worked there, how would you compare what you, had, what you would have learned just working at courses in, in Brazil compared to what you did learn at Penn State? And then obviously we get into the courses that you worked at over the last few years as well. Well, first of all, I have a vision today of work organization that most most problems that I have been into in my previous experience, so it was because of the lack of the work organization. Uh, for instance, uh, it's not common in Brazil. You are this carrot will be saying to you now, but we don't have go course superintendents over here, and that's that's a big problem. I say you have in your as a perfect structure of work, like it all starts in a general manager, then you have of course, superintendent, uh, the head pro professional and his assistants are the same as the of course superintendent and his assistants, but here everything is messed up. You, when I worked there, I was hired basically to assisting finances and suddenly I was doing everything from customer service to public relations to agronomics to even class that was required to, to do. And, there's just not the infrastructure there from no. the business side, the agronomic side, and, and everything else. No, no, there's not. This is this is just one thing. You have many other things. We don't have a solid turf industry. This is another big issue. You don't have a, a legal herbicide market, for instance. In you have everything labeled specifically for turf grass use. That's another huge difference. Is that just because of the relative lack of courses? Like you said, there's 116 courses in Brazil, which is a huge country. Uh, that's, I think one, one course for every, what, two, two and a half million people? Yeah. Where in the U.S., I think there's about anywhere between 13 and 14,000 courses. Is it just because there's so few courses down there, there's not the need for an infrastructure like that? Or, or why do you think? Yeah, you're correct. It's because you don't need it, it doesn't have an appealing market that motivated, that motivates like big industries to commercialize their products like turf equipment, turf herbicides, yeah. And you came to athletic fields, especially I'm talking about soccer fields, and they are really small areas compared to golf courses. And I think if you're measured by square feet, there's not much that is industries can explore regarding this, the selling of these products. Sports turf is also important, but a completely different yeah. beast than maintaining 40, 50, 60, up to 200 acres of a golf course, obviously. Yeah. Take me through the process of being at Penn State, applying for internships. You wound up at Carmel Country Club in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then you wound up as an AIT Patrick Hoy at East Course at Marion. Yeah. What was the what was the application process like, uh, especially as an international student? Were there any more hurdles, I imagine, than if you were 
just just a standard American student at uh, at Penn State. My first beginning with my internship at Carmel County College that was a really good experience. I felt very lucky to be to being there. It was basically a random choice. Uh, in, at, at Penn State, you have a special class to make a decision that helps you to make a decision. And they call this internship preparation class. It's with Dr. John Kaminsky and okay. you make a list of goals and objectives. And at that point I was kind of lost. And he said, if, if I was not sure if I want to go to the cool season side or warm season side of turf grasses and he said you could choose the transition zone and that's an amazing area to work and just go there you have everything and that was exactly what happened I ended up Carmel in the Carmel Country Club they have more than 16 types of turf grasses over there because they have two golf courses and it was like a paradise of turf grasses and I enjoyed a lot I could learn a lot plus I, I met a really solid team uh, the director of Greens and Grounds there was Ben Goodrich. He was very kind to me since the beginning, and he put me working for both superintendents. One was uh, Michael Penny Baker at the South Course. We used to deal with bent grass greens for him, and I also worked for the warm season side. Uh, superintendent was uh, Eric Downs, and it was nice, great, different management styles, and a lot of experience on this too, and it was a great learning. And then a great internship, like you say, you go back to Penn State, wrap up, and then you wind up as an assistant in training at Marion. Yeah, my, my job at Carmel was so, was so good that I was going to come back as soon as possible, which I did. I went back, I worked from, for, for them more three or four months as an assistant in training, and by the time uh, I knew that I would not be able to accomplish my visa requirements to keep working. And the, the job at Marion was a kind of loophole to find another opportunity that I could move into uh, somebody that could provide me the necessary conditions of keep working. And that's what happened over there. You said you were at... Carmel, when you realize that your visa situation must be a problem, you wrote yeah. in your piece, I'm just going to excerpt this. This is from right before the visa section. I was late to the game. If I really wanted to develop a career in the United States, I needed to prepare around my immigration process as it was the most important thing to do immediately on my arrival. The process is lengthy. There are many types of visas you should govern your decisions around their specifics. The system is hard to navigate even with professional assistance. And then you detail H-1Bs and H-2Bs and green cards through labor sponsors and EB-1s and, and, and there's just so many options. At what point was it, was it there? Was it the second run at, at Carmel when you realized that the visa situation would be a problem or, or, or when did that pop up? There's like, oh no, oh, oh no. Yeah, after after two months working there, after after you finish the program, they gave you a special document. It's called an OPT, it's a special authorization for working and training. It's still under a visa student, but you have this period to do the 
migration for a work for a work visa, for instance. And us looking for this lawyer, an immigration lawyer, to help me with this transition. And by that exact point, I knew that it was possible. He communicated me that based on my profile, I was not fitting in any type of this, this, any type of visa at the moment. And that was exactly the 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 point that things start spinning in my head. I said, how I'm doing this. How I'm dealing with this now without being able to keep this work and I will be losing everything that I did so far. Thousands of thousands of hours at the golf course, thousands of hours inside the classroom and I was feeling miserable with this news, but I'm not a complainer, so I recognize that's my own fault. That brings the answer to your question. I should navigate this since my first day of class. I should have this on top of my list of priorities. I should have investigated better and noticed that I would need more than I was thinking. By that time, my thought process was like that. If, if I have a certificate now with me in hand and a solid ongoing job, I don't see a problem to, to move to this visa, but that was not like that. That was a little more complicated. And I should be aware of this since the beginning. Well, just like you say, you, know, you come up, you're in the, the thrill and the rush of, of getting into Penn State and doing that coursework. And all, like you said, so many hours on the course and in the classroom. And it's just, it's, I imagine it was something you never even really thought about early on. Like it, it wasn't even a part of the, the, the process really. I knew that I would need a certification and I knew that I would need good references and um, more importantly, I need to stood up um, among the crew to be deserver of an employer sponsor. And so I was so focused on that that I was forgot to, to investigate it better. And what were the things that you needed still uh, when you went through the delayed process to try to figure out any way to stay in the country working? Like what else would you have needed to get done and get on your application? Yeah, uh, first of all, there was some, by that time, there were some changes in the HB1. The HB1 is the work visa, and that was restricted because being a Brazilian. So there's a list of restrictions by country, and people from this country, there are many others, can't apply for this type of visa right now. Also, uh, I was informed by that lawyer that with just a certification it would not be possible for me to reach a work visa, that a bachelor's degree would be the, at the least education I would need. So all of the things would be impossible for me because I would knew, I would knew to knew that before starting the program, maybe starting as a four-year program would be the right choice if I was really expecting to work in the United States. But as I was an overaged person and I, I felt that two years was a great opportunity to do a fast transition and prepare myself as fast as I could and, and not knowing these details, I, of course, I decided to go for a two year. Right. I mean, there are so many folks in this industry who did go through your programs, but I mean, my gosh, the number of people who are successfully going through two-year turf schools, whether it's at Penn State or other, any of the variety of other big name tech schools or 
big four-year schools or any of the smaller uh, two-year schools. We've run a few yeah. stories recently about the value of kind of that two-year education as well as an alternative. And the number of folks in this country who've done that and who've gone on to big careers in the industry yeah. is huge. So it's just, you know, you just happen to be born on a different continent. And then that's, yeah. it. that's it. <laughs> well, that's, that's uh, some sort of true. So you are in Brazil right now. You, yep. when you got back, you started just going around to some different golf courses. But like you said, uh, there's no infrastructure for turf maintenance. And there's so few courses that, that it's tough to get these positions. You, you wrote in your story, you literally need to knock on the club's door. And you finally got an offer. And I mean, this is, this is going to blow people's minds. I was offered a superintendent job at the salary of translating it over to Brazilian reals, about 7,000 Brazilian reals a month. That sounds like a lot of money. It's about $1,200. Um, and under the condition, I put aside the agronomic plan I had traced for the course to follow the agronomic approach of a board member. So not only are you being paid about $1,200 a month, but you don't even get full control over the course which is just, I think, mind-blowing to any turf pro in the United States. Yeah, that's a relate to everything that I said that makes minds your, your head off. Because it's so difficult for you to set up agronomic process, you do everything right, you know what you're doing, and, you, and suddenly it comes to you a member and say, I don't want to do this, I don't want to like that. And I have my, my tournament in the middle of the winter and I want this, I want that. And these, these are the types that most of the clubs in, in Brazil are in this moment. You have a tremendous influence of board members. I know that's a reality in most part of the countries, most part of the golf courses, but it doesn't get you this level because you have a professional in the field that deserves a little bit of respect, I think, and in you as you find respect, and at least you'll be listened. And, and these are the difference. I think that's enough difference to decide where to work and where to not work. I mean, you are literally a trained professional and, and the yeah. member obviously has the money and the power, yeah. but not necessarily the knowledge of what makes the course look great and play well. Yeah, that's it. So you're in Brazil now. You are planning to move to Europe at some point soon to pursue a career there. What, what, are, the, what are the next steps that you're going to take here in early 2021? Are you going to go over to Europe full time and maybe stay there? Or is the plan still to get back to the United States somehow, some way? Yes, I still think in getting back to the United States for sure. I uh, still try to find loopholes to get that and going to Europe may, can, can help in this matter in the future. I just came back from Italy where I spent three months and I got my European citizenship recognized and with that it's a, it's a big help for a, uh, another application, another visa application in the future. And also I could, I could keep work, I can keep working and getting my resume better and it's a kind of 
new loophole that I have been into. I'm still looking also for uh, continuing my education and pursuing a bachelor's degree as long as I have money in the future. I will, I will be doing this. And in the future, in two years or three years, I'm expecting to to send another visa application, a stronger application that will not be denied and maybe I'll be able to get back and work. And, but yes, I'm trying, I'm thinking with this uh, European citizenship now to explore the market over there and can be good. There are some golf loving countries over there. Uh, would, you, would you go to Portugal, obviously, Portuguese is the, the national language of Brazil. That would make sense from a language perspective. Uh, maybe Spain, yeah. or, or would, you, would you just try to go anywhere you could? Obviously, the English-speaking languages would be great for you now, too. You've got a pretty yeah. good hold on English. Yeah, since I got this European citizenship, I can explore all the countries over there, except UK now, because they are out of the Brexit. That's right, um, of course. It's major laws that would be, would be really nice. And, it's another thing that failed out of my plan. But uh, as soon as I got this European citizenship organized, I started to talk with a golf club, a golf club in Portugal. And the talks are developing well. And I'm hoping for an answer for them really soon. And maybe I'm going there for, for a work there. You joked before we started recording, you're 39, I'm 37. We're yeah. approaching 40, and we feel like we're very old. But the fact of the matter is, you have, you say you're late to the game, but you probably still could have a 25 or 30-year turf career at least ahead of you. So, I mean, while this could be a hiccup, you know, it could just be the first chapter in, in what could be a very long, very good turf career here into probably, you know, even the early, this is weird to say, even the early 2050s. I'm hoping for that. <laughs> I hope it's true. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think you will be doing five years? Let's just say five years from today. You'll be 44 in January of 2026. What do you want to be doing? And what do you think you'll be doing? Well, from five years and from now, I would like to be working in the US, like I said, having things accomplished, like my bachelor's degree, also, I'm looking for the DSWA A certification that would be really awesome to have. And, but if it doesn't work, I'm, I'm planning to get the experience I was able to collect and, and maybe working in Brazil as a turf, turf grass consultant. That's, I feel like that's the best thing I can do in this territory over here, which would be nice. Uh, I'm looking forward to do that. I was planning to do this in my retirement, but maybe if it doesn't work uh, as a superintendent, I can start here with this. And anything else that you want to talk about that I didn't ask or, or we didn't talk about, Raul? I want to say that being there in the period in US was like a dream, it was really cool. And I was able to meet a lot of professors. I had a lot of good classmates. And I, I received a, a great support. And I have some good stories to tell if you want to listen. And sure. I, I think they're, they're really cool. They related really perfectly with this industry and how things are. And 
why do we enjoy this industry? First, when I when I when I got into this major trouble with my documentation, I I contacted my advisor, which was Dr. John Kaminsky at the time, and, and he said we we need to do something for you. Do you do you want me to post something on Twitter and to ask you for help? I said, sure, absolutely, you can do that, and I would please if you do, and he did. And, and two hours later of his Twitter, I got an invitation. For uh, arrangement of a call with Marion Golf Club asking if you want to join because they will have a H2B for the next year. The superintendent called me at the time and said, We are having this program, and if you want to, if you feel like you want to join us and try, we can put you here. And in a matter of days, it was, I was, I was there. So that was really, really cool, I think. That's the power of the network and the social media and that really, really it shows up how this is well-connected and at the right moment. Well, again, Raul Yerk, a Penn State Turfgrass graduate, a former intern at Carmel Country Club in Charlotte, worked as well at Marion and someday soon, I think, we'll be back in the United States working on a golf course somewhere near you. Raul, uh, the best of luck to you in this wild, long, very tangled visa process. Thank you very much, Mr. Lavelle, and appreciate your time offered and the talk. My thanks again to Raul Yerk for sharing his story on Off the Course, and my thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. New episodes of Beyond the Page, Greens with Envy, Off the Course, and the OG Tartan Talks, right here, every Tuesday. Our January issue is online now. Check it out at www.golfcourseindustry.com backslash magazine. You can read Raul's story there, our full spread of State of the Industry stories, and lots more. You can read even more industry news and notes in our Fast and Firm newsletter, delivered every Tuesday to your inbox. Sign up online at golfcourseindustry.com under the subscribe tab. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are wonderful Terry Buchan, Henry Delosier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morgan, and Matthew Wharton. We have some fantastic regular contributors, Tyler Bloom, Trent Bouts, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong, Judd Spicer, John Torsiello, Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfel. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Our sales gurus are Russ Warner and Andrew Hatfield. Jim Blaney designs the magazine, and boy, does he do it well. Kate McCoy makes sure everything goes where it should. Avril Braden and Christina Warner make sure you all receive the magazine. Christina also makes sure Russ grills up enough meat to feed the GCI crew on a regular basis. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. Michaela Dodrell handles advertising and production. Irene Sweeney does more than any of us can keep straight. Stephen Webb handles our classifieds. Our president is Chris Foster. His New Year's beard looks full and healthy. Above all else, we couldn't do what we do without all of you. Thanks so much for listening.
Searching.